Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue en America. I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm Yarina Sancion, and this is Bilingual in America. Hi, I'm Yarina Sancion. In honor of Women's History Month, co-host Suzanne Lasser and I have devoted our time speaking this month to women who are experts in their fields who are living their passion projects, and who are change agents in the world. This week's guest is no different. Dr. Nancy Cloud first featured on Bilingual in America during season one, episode two, The Fat Kid on the Seesaw, visits with us again. If you haven't listened to that, you surely will want to, as Dr. Cloud always delivers a consistent, clear, and cutting edge message about English language learners. Dr. Nancy Cloud, Professor of TESOL programs in the Department of Educational Studies at Rhode Island College, is a specialist in ESL bilingual and dual language education. Prior to her work in Rhode Island College, she coordinated the MS TESOL and bilingual education programs at Hofstra University for 10 years and federally funded projects at the Institute for Urban and Minority Education at Teachers College, Columbia University for six years. Dr. Cloud publishes regularly on topics pertaining to the appropriate assessment and instruction of English language learners K through 12. She received her doctorate from Teachers College, Columbia University, and is proficient in Spanish. Let's listen in as Dr. Cloud shares her gems with co-host Suzanne Lasser and me, Yerina Sencion. Hi, I'm Suzanne Lasser, and today, Yarina Sencion and I are joined by Nancy Cloud. This coming April 22nd, Nancy will be the keynote speaker for Manhattanville College's Changing Suburbs Institute's Educational Forum. The forum is designed to engage attendees in a conversation on cultural responsiveness, unlocking the potential for diverse learners. Nancy had joined us during season one, and she talks about how language opens the world and the importance of affirming students' linguistic repertoires. So I know today we will continue that conversation in a different vein, but always, Nancy, it is a pleasure to have you. So welcome back. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you again. So Nancy, I think as we talk about this idea of unlocking the potential for diverse learners, we can agree that education in multilingual classrooms the teachers continuously pioneer innovative ways to unlock this potential. I'm wondering, as you think about this science of reading, types of book scenes in classrooms, and the greater awareness around translanguaging, are you optimistic about the direction that, say, literacy instruction is heading? Well, I'm, I'm going to split it into the three questions that you asked in there, Suzanne, because I have some mixed feelings about the science of reading that I, so I'd like to pull that part out by itself, but I'm generally optimistic, except I have some mixed feelings about what we refer to as the science of reading. And I find myself agreeing with David Scher, who wrote in the Reading Research Quarterly in, in 2021, is the science of reading just the science of teaching reading in English? And in that article, he pointed out 
how biased what we call the science of reading is to alphabetic languages, more, most specifically English, which has a very opaque orthography and needs certain supports because of the language that it is. But also he talked about Anglocentrism and alphabetism in the teaching of reading. And if you think about the kids that might have learned to read in Chinese before they come to the United States, well, they have a lot of knowledge about how to read, but it has nothing to do with an alphabetic language, nor does it have the phonological recoding, which is so, so dense with English. And so there's a lot of differences. And so my concern lies around the blanket application of the so-called science of reading to multilingual learners without a thought about significant differences in their background when they are entering English for the first time and learning to read in English. Because the science of reading, as we know it, was established around native speakers of English who enter school at whatever age, but let's say age five in kindergarten, and they already know the grammar of English. They have a huge vocab, really big vocabulary in English. And, and when people write books for kindergartners, they write it with the vocabulary in mind that they think that kindergartners will know in English. And the experiences are very Anglo-centric in most cases in terms of the types of reading that we have kids doing. And so this emphasis on the bottom-up skills might make sense for them because they know all the phonemes of English. They know all the vocabulary of English. They're just learning the the cognitive task really of learning how to associate symbols with sounds that they know, with words that they know and so forth. But when you think about a multilingual learner, everything is very different. That None of that is true. Like, like just taking the case of Spanish speakers because that's the most predominant group in the United States and certainly in New York and certainly in Westchester County, the kids who come knowing Spanish have a five vowel system. And now they have to acquire 21 English phonemes. And if they know how to read the phonemes that they have associated to the vowels, the same vowels, A-E-I-O-U, are completely different than the sounds that we want them to associate with those same letters. There's no awareness of that in the approaches. I'm not seeing the awareness of that. And so the emphasis on bottom-up skills is, in my mind, very problematic for kids who are new to every aspect of English because everything is new to them as they're learning. And the biggest thing that they're looking for is for English to make sense, not what sound does this letter make. And, and so, and I'm very concerned about the use of decodable books because there's certainly no cultural responsiveness in them. And when you look at the stories that are being told, they're so artificial because they're trying to represent certain phonemes. And that's not the way text is organized in authentic text. And so we end up with stories that say, Chad is a boy, Chad has a cat. The cat's name is Jack, Jack is black. He's very fat. Like who wants to read that again? And also all of that, ah, 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 that's not the sound that the letter A makes if you come in knowing Spanish. And so, yes, it's a different variant of the sound, but I don't think there's enough appreciation of the differences of multilingual learners. We haven't diversified 
what we call the science of reading enough for multilingual learners. And, and I think it can end up with too many kids being identified as needing intervention. That's the big worry that I have, but also we're, we're making kids hate reading or misunderstand what reading is because of what we're asking them to do over and over and over again. It's not story enjoyment. And I know people will argue with me and go, well, balanced literacy, you don't just work on the bottom up skills. But I am seeing something that I had not seen as much of before, and that is the emergence of a lot of decodable text again, which in the 60s we got rid of because we knew all the deficiencies of that with English language learners. At that time, we called it linguistically controlled text, but it was the same. It was decodable text, and now it's back. And so I have very mixed feelings about the science of reading for all the reasons I just explained to you. So I would just ask reading specialists, given that the article that I referred to by David Chair was in the Reading Research Quarterly published in the United States by our Reading Association. Like reading specialists, reading researchers are really concerned about the misapplication of the so-called science of reading from monolingual understandings over to multilingual populations. They're very concerned about it. And they want us to consider these new isms of Anglocentrism and alphabetism when we think about what, it, what is it that we are promoting. I'm just hope, well, I'm a little bit hopeful that it, once people challenge themselves with these new new understandings that they'll say, wait a minute, what am I doing? I, I really do think when people understand that they're working with multilingual populations, look at Westchester County where from 7% to 15% or greater of the kids sitting in front of you are speakers of other languages. And even once they become proficient in English, they still speak other languages, which is having an effect on their performance. We have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing? What, what would be best practice with multilingual learners? How do we have to rethink? At least we should be rethinking the science of reading and then prioritizing different practices that make the right amount of sense for multilingual learners and get rid of the ones that we really have to call into question, given the reality. Like, you know, it took me a long time as a second language learner of Spanish to really adapt. And I'll just use, and I still can't do it because I learned Spanish at, at age 13 or 14, the R and then the double R, well, forget it. You know, it took a long, I couldn't even hear it at first and I couldn't make my mouth say it. And like, how does that affect learning to read. And then I would also say to you, most reading is silent, so it doesn't really even matter how I'm saying the sound. Anyway, I'm getting lost in that, but I have mixed feelings about the science of reading. I hope, I hope we make progress there in rethinking our practices with multilingual learners. And yet moving on to the type, types of books that exist in classrooms, I'm thrilled. I'm ecstatic. I'm very optimistic seeing the explosion of beautiful, beautiful, wonderful books. It couldn't be any better than it's getting. Well, it can be, of course, it can always be better, but it's pretty wonderful right now. There's a, 
wonderful, wonderful opportunities for teachers and kids and families. And the only question is, are we finding our way to those books? And are those the books that are on our shelves? And are those the books that make up our curriculum? And I think what we really need to be doing is studying our population intimately each year and then studying our bookshelves and our libraries and saying, is it matching up? Is you know, do I have enough mirror books? And I do want to mention the work of Jane Fleming, who's the literacy coordinator of Chicago Public Schools. She did studies in Chicago where she found that, back to the Rudine Sims Bishop concept of windows and mirrors and sliding glass doors, she found that the mirror books are far more important to children, especially in early literacy, than windows and sliding glass doors that I have to see myself in the book. And how can I be interested in engaging in a discussion about the book or writing about the book if I have nothing in my background that taps into that? You know, so I'll use an example on myself. I'm not Jewish. I've certainly been exposed a lot to Jewish culture, but I'm not Jewish. I have never really participated in Seder. And, and, you know, all of those practices are brand new to me. And if someone said, well, let's write about it. Let's talk about it. Like, what would I say? I have nothing to say. But, you know, and then we think Thanksgiving and Halloween and other holidays, uh, are wonderful for children to talk about. Well, that's because we know a lot about it. Those experiences have to reflect the children and the children have to see themselves in the stories and they certainly can now. And we're in Westchester districts where half to 90% of the district is now kids of color. What about our bookshelves? Our half of our books, our 90% of our books. You know, and I know they don't all have to be mirrors, but a lot should be, especially when it comes to early literacy. And, and just in general, whose, whose reality are we affirming? Are we really affirming the languages and cultures of our kids? And related to that is the whole aspect of translanguaging, because translanguaging is also happening now in text. Planting Stories is a relatively new book that came out about the life of Pura Belpre and written um, by, I, I believe she's a Puerto Rican author. She could be Dominican. But um, anyway, there's a lot of, not a lot, but there's enough translanguaging in that book. And it's such a wonderful use of translanguaging as a literary device, like personification or, or simile and metaphor. Like, why, am I, why did the author switch languages? Well, this is a technique that bilingual children can engage in, the use of translanguaging as they write stories. Other kids can't really do that unless they learn the language enough to be able to do that, which is an argument for dual language programs, definitely. But we, we want kids to see translanguaging. That's their reality. They're translanguaging all day long. And some kids are not just bilingual, they're trilingual, they're quadrilingual, they're moving flexibly between those languages. Where's the literature that represents that reality? Well, I would argue it's there now. Thank you, it's there. But is that what we're using in our collections? Is that represented in our collections? And are we reading it to kids and pointing out how wonderful the author's use of translanguaging is? No, but I'm very optimistic about the types of books we could have in our classroom. I'm very optimistic about the role of translanguaging and people's recognition of 
the power of translanguaging for learning in general. Why can't I learn about ocean waves in Russian and then talk about it in English? Why can't I? I could. Just show me, let me see a video that I'll understand better than your explanation in English. And why can't I do that? I can, and I don't speak a word of Russian, but I can find those videos. And th But then in literature, oh, wow, it com comes to a whole new level. And in dual language programs, we can really show kids that um, a dice strategy where we can show them, look how Spanish does this and look how English does this and look how rich Spanish is for adding all these little nuances to words and English can't really do that. Like my name, Nancy, my first name, Nancy, when I was in Illinois, if, if everybody was happy to see me, I was Nancita. But if they thought I was gonna come and ask them for five new things <laughs> and that they didn't feel like doing, then I was Nansota. What do you want, Nansota? <laughs> well, can we do that? in English, not without adding a lot of words, you know? And so the beauty of each language, you know, is something in the literature classes that we, the translanguaging needs to be present in literature so that we can exploit that with kids, the power, the potential of that. And now with all the bilingualism in New York state and and in the country in general, oh my goodness. And aren't we lucky to live in a country where so many languages, the richness of so many languages is present and what are we doing with it? We're squandering it when we could be really, you know, exploiting it. So back to the books, the books are there people, the books are there and we just have to get them in front of kids. And it also means throwing away Maybe there's a few books have to come off the shelf and never mind. I loved Charlotte's Web so much when I was in the third or fourth grade, but maybe that's not the book I should be reading. You know, maybe there are other books for now, for today. Like maybe that was a book for then and not so much for now. And as teachers, are we going to recognize that? and give up some of our favorites. Well, we can still have them, we can still enjoy them, but it doesn't mean that that needs to be the book we read with kids. Nancy, you touched on so many important pieces, right? First, out in response to the science of reading, Escamilla, Krashen, yourself, you're all pointing out the same pieces that we can't just think about this in terms of our Anglo children, our monolingual children, who are only coming from one language backgrounds. And we really need to question what we're doing uh, so that we are not misidentifying students in terms of deficits that it appears they may have when really we're looking beyond the assets that they're coming into our schools with. And as you were talking about those texts, it reminded me of my elementary experience with Neil the Seal and the, the books were, were not rich and we were grouped based on phonics readers, you know, and, and hoping that we're not having the pendulum swing back that way so that we are really questioning what we're doing, but with the, the learner in our classroom in mind. And then obviously this idea of mirrors. It is important that we see experiences that reflect our own, people who look like us, who use language the way that we do, because while it's great to celebrate something for Women's and History Month or 
Asian American Pacific Islander month. That's not enough. It needs to be a continuous thread all year long where, like you said, we are making room on bookshelves for books that really match what we know is now important. Yadi, I don't know what else you want to add, but I'm sure there's so much. Yeah, no, I'm so present and I appreciate your answer, uh, Nancy, because I'm in the classroom still. I'm working with children who are learning English and everyone's jumped on this bandwagon and no one is asking questions. And these are experienced teachers, you know? And so what you said about diversified science of reading, like we need to look at the big picture. Let's not go backwards. I think that this is really important. Uh, so many teachers won't move on in their curriculum because 80% of their children haven't learned um, the AR um, sound. Uh, you know, like they get stuck on these little pieces and we're forgetting that, the, you know, children don't learn in the same way. They learn by bit by bit and that they bring all this richness in their language. You're the, one of the first people who has really clarified this because when you're in, in the schools, I feel like when you start to question, people are just like, no, I'm going to do what I'm being told. And we are, we're forgetting. We're the stewards of you know, keeping education alive for students, fair, equitable. We're the ones who get to say what happens in our classrooms. So I think that this is such a timely conversation and what you share is so rich and so important. The acquisition of new speech sounds takes time. And so when kids are new to English, and let's say they come from a 22 phoneme system and now they're in going to a 44, that's, you know, that's a lot of work to adapt to all those speech sounds. And I'm particularly concerned about benchmarking that goes on in the early grades where you were saying, I'm not, I can't move on because they, they haven't met their benchmarks, mm -hmm. you know, and, and also this burden of letter name, letter sound and letter keyword so i have to learn elephant a word i didn't know i have to learn eh, 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 a sound i didn't associate with that letter and i have to call the letter e but that is not the name that i have for that letter and it's, so it's it's failing to recognize that i'm on a different journey because i come knowing a lot about letters and letter name and letter sound even as a first grader like you know, as an ex-teacher myself, you know, taught for seven years, kids come with a lot of knowledge. Do we even bother to figure out what that knowledge is in their home language? And the most frequent answer I get when I'm in schools is, oh, well, I don't know Russian. How could I figure out what, what they know? So who, who owns the failure to find out what kids know? You know, the, I think we do. And, and I would own that failure too. I don't know Russian, but I have to do something to help myself find out what the kids know. And I also have to find out something about Russian. Like, why aren't I finding out about that? I should be because here's this kid sitting in front of me knows Russian, might've learned to read in Russian, probably did a little bit if the family is literate and might be being read to at night in, in Russian. And I need to know all of that. And so, you know, this is where I would tell everyone to go to Om, Omni, meaning all 
you know, knowing everything, omniglot, omniglot.com, because I can find out about the orthography and the sound system of every language in the world. And so it wouldn't even take me five seconds to go find out a little bit about Russian so that I could start to investigate a little bit what the kid might know. But then if there's no Russian bilingual book in my classroom that the kid can prove, show me, just show me by their interaction with the book, oh, look, this kid really does know a lot about reading. You know, and actually, you know, that's back to that idea of not respecting that you know here we say oh we live in a we live in a global village yeah well does do our practices live in a global village where we really respect and acknowledge the what kids might be bringing so i would especially discourage applying benchmarks to second language learners because they were established around native speaking children mm-hmm. and i would also ask uh, all schools to look at who's in their intervention, intervention, who got identified for that, and what does intervention look like? And is it appropriate for a second language reader? Because we know a lot about second language reading. And the question is, is it becoming mainstream because it needs to? Mm. That's a really powerful question to be asking right now. I, I really appreciate that. We're just going to touch on something that you said. When we get that youngster and we don't have a book that that's a mirror for them and there's resistance on the teacher of letting go of that, that favorite, how do we help teachers? How do we help those who aren't in the educational field to be more culturally responsive in the books that they, they choose for students? Like, how do we shift that energy? Like all I think we need to do, because all you New Yorkers uh, that might be listening to this program is look towards what New York City is doing. And what New York City is currently in the process of, it, of creating is a, what they're calling the mosaics curriculum because they're saying, who are the children that we're teaching? And New York State has issued the culturally responsive sustaining education framework. And that certainly involves having authors, illustrators, books, that represent the cultures that the children's, all of our children come from. And so I think what should be happening with the curriculum is it's fine. We can prescribe the objectives for first graders, second graders, third graders, that's fine. And we can have standards and we can have objectives. But what I don't think we should have is the prescribed books because I can find a book that will let me do any goal you want to show me in the standards, but that also connects with the learners. So I think teachers need more freedom of what what the books will be. The curriculum could be defined on the objectives level, on the standards level, on objectives that you want me to meet, but then let me find the book. I think what we should be doing as professional development for teachers is showing them lots of books because who has time to go find all these books? Like nobody has time for that. And even if librarians are becoming aware of the books, when are they having the chance to show those books to teachers and what could be taught with it? So I think we need a lot of opportunity to share books with teachers 
because there are so many wonderful books that if I showed it to you, you would want to use it right away. There's no doubt in my mind that, and you would say, you know what, I'm going to need to get rid of this other book because the kids hate it. And I think they'll really like this book. So I think teachers need to be given freedom, a lot of freedom, a lot of degrees of freedom to A, know who their children are. Everybody's asking us to do that. TESOL, everybody is asking us to do that. And then the culturally responsive sustaining education framework is certainly asking us to do that. But then if, if the books have already been pre-prescribed and I have, this is the answer I get from teachers. Oh, I'd love to use that book, but I can't. I have to use, because the book has been prescribed to them that they're going to teach XYZ novel. And so the freedom isn't there to choose another book and it needs to be because next year my kids are gonna be different. And the next year after that, my kids are gonna be different. And five years from now, my kids are gonna be different again. And how are the books changing? So I think because kids need to see themselves in the curriculum and especially they need to see themselves in the books because they need to imagine themselves as authors and as illustrators, and that's not gonna happen if I keep showing them books where the authors and illustrators don't look anything like them and the experiences being shared are very different. So, well, resistance could exist for many reasons. A, I love the books I have. B, I've been told I have to use these books. C, I don't have money. How, where am I, how am I gonna buy these books? Four, I, I would love to, but I don't even know what, like what books exist for Haitian kids. I don't even know what those books are. And so, you know, I think the supports, the financial support has to be there. The learning supports have to be there. Fairs, book fairs, where all I get to do is look at wonderful books and then you give me a budget and I can buy anything I want. Like what teacher would resist that? None, I don't think any would, but that isn't what we're doing. And so I, I think we could have really transformative classrooms quickly, some really strong transformation if only the supports were there for teachers. But I promise you the books are there and you can write to me if you're not finding them because I love hunting for them. And, um, and I'm never disappointed. I was having trouble finding Russian themed books that weren't fables and folk tales, but now I've found some. And I've found some historical fiction and I've found some everyday family books and they're beautiful little books. And they're not just Patricia Polacco books, you know, mm. that, you know, so they're there and more will be there if we start buying them. Absolutely. I really appreciate the type of educator that you are. You are um, rolling up my sleeves and getting my hands dirty. You just get in the nitty gritty of it all and you you see the possibilities and, and that's why your passion comes through in your work. And it's just so just invigorating. Right, Yadi, she definitely embodies this uh, mantra of lifelong learner, right? No matter what, Nancy's always, okay, you ask her a question and she is determined that she can get the answer for you. Just give her a little bit of research time. Well, and here's where I want to defend teachers. like. What teacher, especially right now, has any extra time to go hunt for books? Give me a break. Nobody has that time. And if they're doing it, it's only because they're so passionate about it because the time doesn't exist and no one's providing that time. And so I think there should be paid time, I'm going to say it out loud, paid time in the summer for teachers to be 
given the freedom to go find books with a budget for buying some books for their classroom. And if you gave me $500, I'll make it a big number. If you gave me $500 and you paid me for two weeks to go find books, oh boy, I would find books. And you would see me start to use them, and especially if you let me write some lessons to go along with them. And, and let's say all the third grade teachers got together and each one was given $100. And not only did we have to find the books, we had to write lessons that tied to the standards to the books and share them with one mm -hmm. another. Wow, we'd have a big change right away. Transformation right in the moment. We don't have to wait for it. We Sometimes we think transformation is a long process, like no, lightning bolt transformation. Why do elementary teachers and secondary teachers, why do we like reading with kids? Because we love reading. Mm -hmm. We love the book too. So the minute you fall in love with some new books, oh, that's all that we need to overcome resistance, that you, you just fall in love with these new books and there you are. Well, I hope, Nancy, that amongst our listeners, there are some school board members or uh, superintendents, coordinators who can work so that teachers will have the flexibility, like you're saying, to take time in the summer when they're not rushed to really look for quality literature that are, are mirrors and windows and that they are not limited to pre-approved from bid list authors and publishers only, because that makes it really hard for any of us that want to diversify the books that appear on our bookshelves. And so I'm agreeing with you, Su Suzanne, with what you said earlier. It, it, no, no, it's not Black History Month, so I read those books. No, it's essential. It's like, look who the kids are. I, I told you the statistics in Westchester are unbelievable. New York City, even more. Kids of color, it's 75% in seven out of the eight districts that are part of this consortium that are coming to this event. 75% of the kids are kids of color in seven out of eight districts. Like, what do the books look like? You know, public school is for the public. Well, who is the public? And are we really reflecting that in the curriculum? That's what New York State was asking with the culturally responsive sustaining education framework and what New York City is working on with the Mosaics curriculum. It's long overdue. Well, Nancy, you have shared some amazing gems as usual. And for our listeners, we want you to know that you can hear Nancy speak at the upcoming Changing Suburbs Institute, sponsored by Manhattanville. That'll be taking place in April. Nancy will be the keynote speaker this year, where she'll be discussing advancing English language learners, language and literacy development using culturally responsive children's books. This session is for everyone. And as you heard Nancy here talk a bit about a lot of different things that she's involved in as an educator and as a professor, uh, you can only imagine when she has an extended period of time to share her gems. So Nancy, as always, it is a pleasure to be able to speak with you and have you continue to inspire, I know myself and Yarina in the work that we do because there is still much work that needs to be done. Well, thank you, Suzanne. It's been a pleasure to be with, with all of you. Speaking and learning from Dr. Cloud is like drinking from the well. 
The integrity of her words are powerful and her commitment for excellence for language learning practices is clear. Dr. Nancy Cloud will be delivering the keynote speech for Manhattanville's College Changing Suburbs Institute on April 22nd on the topic of Advancing English Language Learners Language and Literacy Development Using Culturally Responsive Children's Books. To register, please visit mville.edu and click on the Changing Suburbs Institute link. Teachers, parents, school administrators, and college students are invited to participate. See you at the conference. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm Bilingual in America and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback. Follow us, like us, share us.